Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. We are back from our summer hiatus, and we're ready to pick up where we left off. Uh, Today, we're coming back to a story we've covered on Yevgeny Prigozhin and his Wagner group. Last week, the world learned the shocking news that Prigozhin died in a plane crash north of Moscow. His demise came exactly two months after he launched an abortive mutiny against the Russian military leadership, which many have called the most significant and direct threat to Putin's regime since he first came to power two decades ago. As we discussed on an earlier episode, Putin's labeling of Prigozhin as a traitor seemed to seal his fate, with it being just a matter of time before Putin moved decisively to respond to the threat. Looking forward, though, much uncertainty looms over the future of the Wagner Group and Russian private military companies more broadly. It's far from certain whether Wagner can replicate its previous success without Prigozhin at the helm. Yet the Russian government's significant resource constraints and lack of bandwidth given the ongoing war in Ukraine suggests the Kremlin will continue to see a need to engage with these semi-state groups in some capacity. And so to discuss all of this and more, we're really pleased to have two wonderful experts with us today, both Kim Martin and Vonda Felbaugh-Brown. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Uh, Very brief bios. Kim is a professor of political science at Barnard College at Columbia University. Her current research focuses on Russian foreign policy uh, and security policy, NATO enlargement, and the global politics of climate change. She's also been an amazing co-author on a forthcoming CNES report on the future of Russian semi-state organizations, so keep an eye out for that release. And Vonda is a senior fellow in the foreign policy program at the Brookings Institution. She's an expert on international and internal conflicts and non-traditional security threats, including insurgency, organized crime, urban violence, and illicit economies. Okay, Kim, what I thought maybe we could start with you, Um, and you've covered Russia for a very long time. You've followed Wagner very closely. did you ever think that you would see something like this? And I don't just mean Prigozhin's death, but really the rise of Prigozhin and Wagner and to the extent that they like were really a product of the system that they grew influential and audacious enough to challenge the system itself. It really, I mean, when you step back and think about the events that have unfolded, they really are spectacular. And I wonder just as a kind of broad way of getting into this, your reflections on what's taken place over the last couple of months. Yeah, it has very much been surprising. You know, Prigozhin had connections to Putin going back to the early 1990s in St. Petersburg, which is something that Putin finally admitted a couple of days ago. Um, People who had been studying Prigozhin and Putin for a long time knew about this, but it had never been made public. And you would have expected that somebody like Prigozhin, who was completely dependent on Putin's good graces for his rise. I mean, he started life being an ex-con. He was imprisoned for nine years in Soviet times for ordinary theft and burglary. And then when he um, got his start as a grocer and a a restaurateur in St. Petersburg, it was at the time that Putin was in the mayor's office of St. Petersburg, having responsibility for, um, you know, approving contracts 
and so that means that that Putin was there from the beginning, um, allowing his rise. And then when Putin moved to the Kremlin, Prigozhin moved with him, first doing the catering for the Kremlin, and then doing catering for the Russian public school system, and then doing military catering and cleaning before he became the face of the Wagner Group. And so everything that Prigozhin has accomplished in life really depends on Putin and Putin's network. And yes, I think it's amazingly surprising that he decided that his head was so big um, that he could challenge the roof that he'd been given by the Kremlin. That's what um, people who um, specialize in Russia often call it, having a roof that allows you to operate um, safely and under protection. And he really challenged that roof. And it didn't happen suddenly. It happened over a period of years, and then it sped up in recent months. But I never, ever thought that he would do something so stupid as what he did in launching his mutiny and then, you know, shooting down the helicopters and the airplane and killing 13 Russian airmen. And maybe even worse than that, saying that Putin's justification for the war in Ukraine was a lie because Putin had been tricked by his advisors, that they're, you know, they're, the Ukraine had never intended to attack Russia, that NATO enlargement didn't matter, that Ukraine didn't need denazification, um, and that the war was all about um, allowing generals to get um, medals and um, giving the oligarchs in Russia more places to invest. I mean, even though he didn't take on Putin personally, that just undercut everything that Putin stands for. And it's amazing to me that he was so stupid that he thought he could get away with it. I thought I was going to ask a quick follow-up question, which about his hubris. I mean, you know, we've talked about, you know, that Putin labeled him as a traitor and we all kind of understand the weight that that term carries coming from Putin. And so, I mean, how, how do you, I mean, as someone who has followed Prigozhin for a very long time, like help us understand like his hubris. I mean, it, why would he feel so confident that he had gotten away with this, that he'd be willing to get on a plane with his, you know, other senior ranking uh, leaders within the Wagner organization? I mean, I don't know. I'm, there's probably not an answer, but your reflections. <laughs> Well, just a couple of thoughts. One, it seems like he believed his own publicity. Um, he, in recent years, had you know created three movies about the exploits of the Wagner Group, and he was this big social media presence, and everybody in the West talked about him. He was clickbait, um, you know, throughout social media everywhere. And it seems like he really believed that he had become important enough that Putin would have no choice except to accept him. Um, and then it may just be also that he was never really central in the entire oligarchic system in Russia. He gets called an oligarch, um, but that, that isn't who he was. He wasn't a, a super wealthy person. He was just a wealthy person. Um, and so he didn't really understand how the system operated because he wasn't in the inner circle. And so I think that might have been part of it too. He thought that he had more leeway than he did. He thought that he had more trust from Putin than he did because he was an outsider trying to make it in an insider's game. Yeah, great points, Vondo. If you want to build on anything, and I'm also curious on your kind of big, broad reflections as someone who has covered insurgencies, internal conflict about like the timing and whether you saw kind of signposts and indicators that something like this was plausible. Yeah, let me sort of reiterate a, a core point that uh, Kim made, which is that Prigozhin's um, core asset was the protection of Putin. And if fundamentally failed to understand that. The tensions between the Russian military and parts of the GRU and Prigozhin go back to Syria. 
And Wagner was uh, the successor to a uh, previous uh, private security company, the Slavonic Corps, that also ran afoul of the Russian state, was run, was, was cut to size, and then allowed with some core people like Utkin to be transformed into uh, the Wagner Group. And the Wagner Group thrived because Prigozhin um, had the ear and the protection, the roof from Putin. So, you know, I often hear comments that Prigozhin uh, uh, was this, this brilliant genius, logistical genius. I'm quite skeptical of many of these comments and I think of him in comparison with other warlords and uh, other mafia dons. So someone like El Chapo, who was truly a, a logistical genius, including because he understood he needed to stay far more undercover uh, than Prigozhin uh, ever did. And even far less famous Mexican uh, warlord, warlord, drug lord, uh, El Mayo, who is still on the land, who is really the most powerful man and the most successful man out of the Sinaloa cartel, arguably one of the most successful criminal organizations ever. Now, Wagner is not just a criminal organization, obviously a private security company linked to the Russian state. I don't want to overdraw the analogies. Uh, but Prigozhin got consumed by the salesman that he was selling. I mean, the, the Prigozhin's biggest asset in addition to uh, or beyond the protection of Putin was his salesmanship. And he started believing what he was saying, however um, thin uh, that frequently was. Now, as to uh, the mutiny, I, I mean, I thought it was stunning. I hadn't expected it. I thought that Prigozhin would realize he was heading to a retirement and that he would have gone for the uh, uh, opportunity to have a very comfortable retirement somewhere in Russia or somewhere in Africa or perhaps somewhere else, because the tensions between certainly the Russian military, but more broadly the Russian state and him were building up. It was kind of clear by January, February, that he is seen uh, of 2023, that he is seen by um, uh, the Russian military as uh, like a core problem to destroy, to do away with, and that the Wagner fighters are no longer seen as critical for the Ukraine operations. Uh, and there were many efforts at the time, just conclude on that, to start rolling parts of uh, Wagner to other Russian private security company. Redoubt was being floated again, just as it was at the beginning uh, of the invasion of Ukraine. And you know he had a choice at the time. He could have retired comfortably or he could have challenged the system. He chose the latter, which was daring and crazy, and he chose to do it in the craziest way possible of uh, leading a mutiny uh, with armed soldiers, killing Russian soldiers in Russia, and then, you know, essentially dismissing Putin's credibility. So that he would die was almost inevitable in my view. Yeah, I think, but your point about his public profile is so interesting because for so many years, he did manage to keep a much lower profile. They denied links between Wagner and the Kremlin. And, and then kind of with the invasion of Ukraine, like they threw that shroud, you know, I don't know, to the extent that it was a shroud of secrecy, that's obviously overstating it. But that was all pushed aside. And he, Prigozhin, clearly looked like he was making some sort of political push to raise his political profile. Kim, I wonder what you think, like what he was after. Like, what do you what do you think Prigozhin was seeking to accomplish? 
Well, a couple thoughts. First of all, just on what, what Vonda had said, Prigozhin was an incredibly risk acceptant person and he couldn't have gotten where he was if he hadn't been risk acceptant. And so you don't really expect somebody who takes big risks and thinks about big money and you know comes up with some new creative idea that is, is very dangerous. You don't expect them to necessarily go quietly into retirement. That doesn't tend to happen very often with uh, people who uh, rise to the top in, in Russian politics in any case. But um, and, and in terms of uh, what happened after the mutiny, you know, there's no place to hide. Um, he, If he had the, the GRU against him and the FSB against him, they would hunt him down wherever he was in the world. So he probably had no choice except to keep on going. But I think Fonda is absolutely right that why he decided that this was the right right thing to do is is just not logical at all. And and you're you're right, Andrea, that that he appeared to be forming a political campaign, and he was apparently actually thinking about running for president, which is you know that that's incredible. You don't take on Putin that way. Um, but but even if you are taking on a, a lesser political office, you wouldn't do it without getting a very strong signal from Putin that that was something that Putin wanted to have happen. Um, and yet there was evidence of, a while back that that he was actually starting a political campaign. Tim, you've been waiting very patiently. As always. You know, my, my question, though, is, uh, uh, I guess it's, it's looking at uh, what uh, Andrea said at the very, uh, just a minute ago about what were they after? What was there? What was it that uh, made him pull the trigger right then in terms of a coup? Like, what was it? Who was it directed towards? Was it directed towards Putin, really? Or... Or was it, you know, from the rhetoric of the time, it looked like it was really Shoigu and uh, Gerasimov and the others that that was the target for him, that it was there was he was upset with the military. He wanted to demonstrate that he was upset. And yet he sends these soldiers on the road up to up to the Kremlin. I mean, it's this mixed thing. Um, it, it, I guess it's hard to, to, to say, really. But 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 what triggered that particular coup? attempt at that time, what was he really, what what triggered him? What made him do that? And again, this might be hard to, to answer. So I'm going to give you an easier one. You can try the other one, but an easier one in terms of the Belarus play uh, and Lukashenko and, 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 uh, and suddenly having him appear as if he's come up with the answer to help Putin out of the corner that he found himself in. And, and the, and he's going to let the, the, uh, uh, Prigozhin and his people uh, into Belarus and give them this tented camp and they were going to be training the Belarus uh, military and then they were they were threatening the Poles, you know, we're going to cross over and I mean, it was a crazy play with Belarus. So, um, so, so you can try the harder question where there's no real answer, but, but the Belarus one is, is, is uh, still a bit of a mystery uh, you know, did, did uh, Lukashenko just come out and say, I'm here to help? Or was his arm twisted by Putin saying, you're going to help me by taking this guy into your country? I mean, what what how what was that play all about? Yeah. You Maybe I'll, I'll start. I mean, you know, obviously, um, I was not able to speak with Prigozhin as he was making those decisions. No, you know, am I able to be in his head? So and I think that he was deeply misguided by the hubris and the self pitch that he was selling. Uh, but I also do believe that he was realizing that things are going wrong across the spring, that he that there were multiple challenges, there were moves to 
put Wagner on the uh, roster of the Russian military. There were moves to uh, uh, roll parts of Wagner onto Russian private military sec uh, security companies linked to some of his chief rivals, uh, like people in GRU or ex-GRU or Shoigu. And uh, he might have erroneously clearly, but nonetheless imagine that the dramatic action uh, was uh, the only way at this point uh, to stay alive. If the option of retiring happily before June, uh, as Kim suggested, would simply not be ever part of his thinking. Um, and you know, clearly in the initial mutiny hours, the phrasing was all about the Russian military, which had been the, the target of his rhetoric all along. But as the mutiny is unfolding, as it, it's rolled over or as it gives up, then the rhetoric changes very significantly to be specifically also going after Putin and suggesting that if Putin is not complicit in the way as Shoigu, he is stupid. And so there was another red line for Putin um, to cross. Now, as to Belarus, um, you know, Belarus was kind of larger uh, play, uh, but in a way play that very much mimicked uh, Prigozhin's play during the uh, Niger coup, which is taking place at the time of the St. Petersburg Africa summit. Uh, and uh, Prigozhin is immediately uh, coming in there saying that uh, he would uh, be sending uh, Wagner forces, is praising the summit, and uh, he is talking at this point about Wagner's role as Russia's success. So in my view, so both Niger, none of which comes to materialize, materialize at least so far, and Belarus are his desperation at this point to stay alive, to prove that he still somehow can be useful, uh, both him as an individual and the Wagner group. Obviously, you know, he miscalculates and Russia does him in, and the Kremlin does him in and doesn't buy the narrative that he stays useful. It's like it a movie. It's amazing. But Kim? Yeah, so first of all, on Shoigu and the timing of Prigozhin's decision, um, Shoigu had uh, published an order saying that by July 1st, all private military companies, not private military companies, but the, the you know semi-state forces, it was never a private military company, but that all uh, forces that were um, fighting uh, on behalf of Russia had to sign direct contracts with the defense ministry. And the reason that that was the last straw for Prigozhin is that that would have cut him out of the contracting process. Um, he would no longer, his primary role, he's no, he has no military experience, no command experience. His primary role was as a recruiter and a contractor. And if the, the forces under his, um, his wing had been forced to sign uh, direct contracts with the defense ministry, there would have been no purpose for Prigozhin anymore. And so that was what was going on in, in late June. But in, in terms of Belarus, um, uh, I don't think that Lukashenko actually probably did the negotiation. I think probably that the Kremlin decided that this is what was going to happen because Lukashenko is completely dependent on Putin for his survival. So he would never have taken an initiative that Putin hadn't already uh, pre-planned. Um, and probably making him look as though he was a negotiator was something that sort of salved his ego and made him more happy to, to participate in this. But I think that there are really two purposes that having the Wagner Group in Belarus served. Um, the most important was getting them off of Russian territory um, because the people who went into Belarus were actually the people who engaged in the mutiny. 
Uh, they came in from eastern Ukraine. They um, stopped in Rostov-on-Don, and then they began the march to Moscow. Um, and then, as part of the the um, the drawdown of the mutiny attempt, um, they were sent back into their their previous uh, place in eastern Ukraine, where they had not be actually been involved in the Ukraine war since early May. But that was where they had their 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 base. And then they had a major training base in Russia, in Malkina, in in southern Russia, which they had been in cooperation with the GRU since 2015 we know from satellite images. But sending them to Belarus got the people who were actually the mutineers off of Russian territory. And the reason that that was particularly significant is that they were the people who were most likely most loyal to Prigozhin, because the people who were involved in the mutiny were the ones recently fighting in Ukraine who had just gotten out of prison in the past year because of a deal that Prigozhin had made with the support of the Russian state that they would have their prison terms commuted if they were willing to fight for Wagner for six months. And so that means that they were they were bad guys um, when they went back to Russia, the individuals who went back to Russia. What we've seen in all of the media and social media reports is that they went back to their lives of crime. And so they were dangerous individuals. But having this group of mutineers who were really loyal to Prigozhin on Russian territory back at their base in Volcano would have been really dangerous. So that was part one. Part two is, you know, I don't think that they were actually involved in, in doing much training of, of Belarusian forces because these guys were a bunch of former prisoners. They were not well-trained elite Wagner forces, so they wouldn't have added much to Belarus. But something else to think about is that, you know, Russia probably didn't mind that Poland and, and Latvia and Lithuania got all up in arms about what Wagner was doing there and what it would mean for, you know, for migration and other forms of hybrid warfare. And it diverted resources from NATO that could have been more directly put just to the war in Ukraine or towards other Russian threats, towards all of a sudden having to pay attention to these Belarusian borders that had not been um, all that important uh, in recent months. Yeah, and a few um, additions to what uh, Kim was just saying. So, you know, absolutely, Belarus is the parking lot for uh, the um, uh, Wagner forces that were seen as most uh, dangerous, mo most risky, and this went beyond the forces in Ukraine. Um, in uh, Syria, which was the theater where uh, the Wagner group had long operated, and uh, where you have also the Russian military, um, but where also there were deep connections to top Russian military and GRU officers, we saw a similar move. Uh, as the mutiny is unfolding, uh, presumably um, Russian forces, along with Syrian government forces, seal the Wagner bases and give uh, Wagner forces the choice, sign on the roster of the Russian military. Now, it was very doable in Syria because you had the Russian military deployed there. You cannot do it in the same way in uh, the Central African Republic or uh, in uh, Mali, because you don't have the Russian military deployed there. But those who refused or who, those who were seen as dangerous were either flown to Moscow in the first place, apparently, or Russia for interrogation, and many were also, also parked in uh, Belarus. And so the second comment that I want to add to what uh, Kim concluded with, uh, well, actually, one other thing to say here, you know, I think that the decision to parking them in Belarus, as opposed to arresting them, killing them, fighting them in Russia, was part of the broader decision that Putin, Shoigu, the Kremlin made of how they will confront in the immediate hours uh, the threat. Once they right. decided they did not want shootouts on the streets, uh, highways uh, of Russia, 
then just arresting them uh, would have run the risk of more vis visible military action, more visible rebellion. So parking them in Belarus was uh, the safer option, getting them rid of uh, the danger, but also not, um, not uh, uh, risking a shootout uh, beyond already the bad shootouts that took place with uh, uh, the Wagner group shooting down Russian uh, aircraft and killing Russian uh, pilots uh, uh, taking place. I know, Jim, you want to ask something here. Um, I, I, then I want to comment a little bit um, on um, um, the, the, the Africa dimension to it, but uh, I think you want to ask something specifically. We definitely want to get in, when, well, in a minute, turn to what the future of Wagner is going to be, including with its Africa operation. So we'll definitely go there. But Jim, you go wrap, the, wrap uh, this up. Just a, just a quick one. Uh, how much uh, did, did, did uh, Prigozhin have allies at all among the uh, oligarchs or within the military or the security services who were kind of on his side? I mean, we know Sir, um, one of the, uh, of course, there was... Uh, Sir Yes, thank you. Uh, was uh, was uh, arrested and disappeared, and uh, and there and there was thinking that well, he's uh, allied with Prigozhin. Uh, but w were there others who all of a sudden went underground after this turns turned sour, and uh, they wanted to hide their relationship with the Prigozhin? Um, are there others that have disappeared that we don't even know about, or really was he kind of a lone a lone actor here, uh, a bit of a rogue? Uh, propelled by his own hubris. Kim, you want to jump in there first? Sure. There, the, according to the Wall Street Journal, there were um, 13 uh, to 15 uh, high-ranking Russian officers who were in some combination um, brought in for interrogation um, and then in some cases were fired. And we know that Sir Vigan, he appears to be under house arrest. Nobody knows for sure, but he was relieved of his command um, the day before Prigozhin was killed. Um, he uh, apparently is still in the military. He has not been kicked out of the military, but he was relieved of his command position. He had been the person in charge of the Russian Air and Aerospace Forces, and then he'd been also an earlier commander in Ukraine. And Prigozhin had identified him as his go-between with the defense ministry and all the negotiations that happened. And, and I think that there, from, from just what we know from press reports, um, U.S. officials had said that there was a suspicion that Prigozhin believed that more people in the Russian military were about to mutiny alongside of him. So he may have thought that it wouldn't just be the Wagner forces, that others would be following along behind him. Now, they didn't follow him. But we do know something that's very interesting, which is that during the mutiny, um, nobody tried to really stop him outside of those helicopters and the airplane that were flying overhead. And um, we don't know from publicly available sources whether they actually fired on the Wagner group or whether the Wagner group fired on them first. I think that is a mystery that we don't yet have public source information for. But what was striking is that in Rostov-on-Don, um, uh, the Wagner Group forces were able to just go in and occupy the Southern Command headquarters, which is where Russia was managing its war in Ukraine, is still managing its war in Ukraine, were able to just walk into the local FSB, um, the follow-on to the KGB, the Domestic Intelligence Services building, and just occupy the building, and nobody did anything. And I think there's sort of two possibilities for why that happened. One is that um, Putin knew full well before this was happening. He got some uh, message, apparently, 
currently, um, including from somebody in the Wagner group, um, a, a commander named Troshev, um, that something like this was planned. And maybe he just asked everybody to stand down to avoid the violence. That's one possibility. Um, but a second possibility, and maybe the more plausible possibility, is that Prigozhin actually had a fair amount of support among these folks in the security forces who might also not have any particular love loss for Shoigu. So Shoigu is one of these people who also didn't have any military experience before he suddenly was made defense minister under Putin. And so he probably doesn't have a lot of respect uh, among the, the uniformed personnel and he's not known for his competence. Yeah, right. I think all really interesting. I mean, like he was unopposed, as you said, there was also no pro-Putin kind of counter mobilization, which is also really interesting. And I think the thing that to watch and that is really so hard to gauge is the extent to which Prigozhin's messages had resonance among a much larger swath of Russians, right? He had this very kind of populist message about, you know, the fat cats at the top and the corruption and all of that kind of stuff. So that 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 is, you know, presumably still there, even though Putin has neutralized the immediate threat. So I think that's something that's worth watching. But I want to quick oh, go ahead, Vanda. Yeah, yeah for I sure. I to say that, you know, regardless of how the... Um, puzzle about how much uh, advance uh, warning Russian intelligence services head of uh, the mutiny uh, or not. Uh, and there are some indication that um, that Prigozhin was forced to advance the plan for the mutiny because it became known that the information had leaked out to the Russian government. But regardless of how that is resolved, uh, uh, Prigozhin and Wagner more broadly had many connections to the Russian military. Serovikin was not the only man who was a part of the Roger Wagner uh, benefits network uh, roster. Um, many of the most effective Wagner uh, military um, actors, military commanders, uh, like uh, Utkin, of course, came out of the special operations forces. Wagner had uh, many connections to the Russian military in Syria, and it was a love-hate relationship. There were significant segments of the Russian military that really hated Wagner in Syria and were completely happy when the U.S. bombed and killed presumably several hundred uh, uh, Wagner fighters. But there were others that felt this was a betrayal. And part of the threat that I think um, uh, Prigozhin poses and why he needs to be crushed from the perspective of Kremlin is that he is splitting loyalties, um, uh, at least at the sub-levels of the military. And he also has connections, more fraud connections uh, to the GRU. So he is not just this, you know, populist, um, crazy clown who decides to march on Moscow. He poses a threat precisely because there is uncertainty of whom else he will bring along. And I don't mean whom else, uh, the, the prisoners, uh, but what other Russian military actors and uh, what other Russian powerful actors like the oligarchs. And he fails, like they don't show up. Ultimately, when push comes to shove, uh, yes, there is no opposition in Rostov, um, but, but ultimately no one comes out publicly and says, oh, this is the way to go, bring down Putin, bring down uh, the Kremlin uh, new era. Yeah. Okay. I mean, all all really good points that I agree with. Um, I want to like turn the page just slightly because I think one of the looming questions out there is then what becomes of the Wagner group. Um, and you know, some people have posited that this is the end of Wagner. Some people have gone out to say, oh, the Kremlin has now learned their lesson and they're not going to be working with these private military companies or semi-state organizations because look, they pose a threat to the state, which I think all of us on this call would likely agree that's probably not the case or is 
you know, certainly overly simplistic at best. But I wonder if you both have thoughts on, you know, what is the future of Wagner? Can it continue without the charismatic, bold figure that Prigozhin was? Will it continue to survive as an organization? Vanda, I don't know if you want to start. Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm glad to. So, you know, I think there are three scenarios. One is wholesale liquidation of Wagner, which I don't think is what's going to happen. Another scenario is preservation of Wagner with a new figurehead, uh, but uh, with a new figurehead uh, whose operations are much less, much more controlled underneath by the GRU, in particular actors like. Um, uh, Andrei Avrianov, who's already been going around uh, Africa. Which I also don't think it's quite the future. And a third option uh, in which Wagner is chopped up, there might be entities or entity left that's still called Wagner. Others which will have new names, perhaps will be uh, rolled uh, to other Russian private, semi-private uh, security enterprises. Um, others which will have uh, brand new names, but perhaps under existing Wagner leadership. Now, I think that third future uh, is the more likely one. And partially, I think so, because we are already starting to see it unfolding uh, in reality. So let me make a few concrete comments here. So first of all, I think that we really need to understand that there was for a long time, and the long time being summer of uh, 2022, a strong division between Wagner's operations uh, in Ukraine and Wagner's operations in the Middle East and Africa. Initially in the spring, as Wagner gets called uh, into Ukraine, uh, both commanders, some logistical assets and some fighters are moved. But those movements from Africa and the Middle East stopped by about the summer of last year. And then the, the, the recruitment, the operations uh, in uh, Ukraine are run quite separately from those in Africa and the Middle East, or at least separately in the sense that they are not further depleting and undermining uh, Wagner operations there. And, and by the way, we have to be a bit careful here. We're talking about the Wagner group and its operations, but of course, Wagner was much more than just Wagner military and Wagner training. Uh, it's really the Wagner network with its hundreds of um, economic companies, many shell companies, moving also um, lootable resources, providing mechanisms um, for laundering uh, money for the Kremlin, for um, uh, escaping Western sanctions uh, on the Kremlin and Russian oligarchs. So it's a much larger enterprise than Wagner. And many of the entities of that enterprise are already not called Wagner. They were linked to Prigozhin, they were linked to Wagner, but they operated under different names. So in Syria, uh, we've, so, so I, I think that the Wagner in Ukraine is going to be liquidated. Uh, you know, arrested, many more people could potentially die um, uh, that are seen as too dangerous, others that will be serving uh, in some form under the, uh, on the rosters of the Russian military. In Syria, we saw similar moves, but we haven't seen that all Wagner personnel has been removed or taken out of the country. They are now operating under uh, the um, uh, um, uh, security forces under the official military of Russia. In Libya, we have seen Avrianov, the deputy GRU uh, general, meeting uh, the day before, within hours of Prigozhin's death, is meeting with uh, the Libyan warlord, uh, Haftar, and uh, presumably telling Haftar that he is now, or at least his people are now going to be running the support operations uh, for uh, Haftar's uh, Libya uh, misadventures. But at the same time, in the Central African Republic, the messaging that uh, the president gets there is that Wagner stays 
And the man who will be running Wagner is the existing head of Wagner's operation in the Central African uh, Republic, uh, which is uh, Vitaly Perfilev. Uh, and of course, the Trochev name uh, was mentioned by uh, Kim that was floated as the kind of top head replacement for Wagner. There have been rumors that he has since then gone to Redoubt, uh, another Russian private military security company. Whether that's true or not uh, is a question. And none of this might be permanent, right? The arrangement that's put in place in Mali for the next three months might change. Uh, but in my view, it's really the restructuring, dividing of the empire, but preserving as much of the economic strategic thrust um, uh, and other assets that it brought, preserving as much of it possible under much tighter Kremlin and GRU rule um, that I think is the future. And Vanda, you and I were on a, a separate call where I think, we, in, you know, you had referred to the point too that um, breaking up Wagner into smaller kind of entities is preferable probably from the Kremlin's perspective. I don't know if you want to Sure. Um, I mean, you know, all these entities uh, provide the danger and managing um, a lot of uh, small actors is more challenging than managing uh, one bigger one. But uh, the threat is not just the probability but it, uh, of the risk, but also the cost of that the risk will impose. And the Kremlin has just lived with the risk, the catastrophic risk of one big entity going rogue. It's far more preferable, at uh, least it's, it's far more dangerous uh, than uh, the more preferable option, rather, of running a bunch of smaller companies where, you know, the difficulties of management might be greater, but none of them going rogue will pose that same level of threat that um, one large one going rogue uh, has posed to the Kremlin. So um, that, that's why I think that chopping up, giving maybe keeping the name Wagner in some places, using new names, rolling them on other private security companies, making brand new names, preserving perhaps some of the entities like Midas, which was one of the big uh, economic uh, diamond uh, and uh, gold um, channeling companies. Um, for uh, Wagner is very likely the future. And the reason why I don't think that we will see the wholesale liquidation of all of these entities is because they provided tremendous amount of benefits to the Russian government. They provided political manipulation, strategic thrust, economic resources, including clandestine economic resources and money laundering channels, none of which Russia can quite openly espouse. I mean, as we are talking today, coup took place this morning in Gabon. And um, the coup is anti-France and very problematic for the United States. Both countries, if the coup stays, will be the losers. Yet the Kremlin has come out very quickly, very strongly, not quite condemning the coup, but expressing very strong concern about the coup. Why? Because Moscow finds it problematic to just be labeled as the coup supporter across Africa. It's trying to court countries like Kenya and South Africa that are tremendously leery of having coups take place in their own countries or being seen as supporting coups. So Russia cannot quite openly embrace what it was using proxy actors like Wagner's uh, to exploit. Yeah, and I, I was going to bring up the coup in Gabon um, too, but I think there have been some Wagner-linked Telegram channels, though, kind of pushing that anti-colonial narrative. So, and again, in terms of information operations and things that these entities do in Africa, they play. Yeah, a no, absolutely, like I mean, the Wagner and I would say Russia's uh, misinformation campaign and polarization campaign in Africa have been intense. Now, I think Africa was like the first 
continent or area of operations where we saw Russian uh, policy more than a decade ago moving frontally into an anti-U.S. stance. The policy became just blatantly anti-U.S., not uh, so much so that substantive matters really didn't were trumped by that broader and overarching uh, global thrust. But again, Russia could only do it so much so openly and explicitly through Russian diplomacy and doing so through these other means uh, was uh, very convenient. But it would be a great mistake to think that the coups in Gabon, in Niger, for that matter in Mali, um, or uh, other coup attempts that we have seen over the past three years are solely the work of Russia. They come in from internal problems, deep-seated internal um, misgovernance and uh, structural deficiency. Russia exploits them, takes advantages of them, um, uh, creates the breeding environment that, that, that amplifies them. Uh, but Russia is not the one that's kind of telling the Putschis, go and move now. Yeah. Kim, I want you to, any kind of, uh, of your own reactions or kind of assessments of where Wagner will go from here and, and maybe picking up on this point on its operations in Africa. I mean, how impactful, um, how significant from a U.S. policy perspective is what Wagner is doing there? Like, are we are we, are we overstating it? And, you know, this really should be, a, you know, a distant concern from a national security U.S. policy perspective. Or is this something that you think needs that, you know, the United States needs to be paying attention to and more directly competing, confronting the challenge in Africa? So a lot of material to cover there. Let me first just respond to some of the really terrific things that Vonda said. I have less um, uh, confidence than Vonda does on what the future of the Wagner Group is going to look like. And I think there are two things we should keep in mind that would be disadvantages for Russia if the Wagner Group was broken up. Um, the first is that the fighters in Wagner have not stayed in one country. They have gone from country to country and they have used the things that they have learned in particular locations in new locations. Um, and so that's a real advantage that they have that would be difficult to replicate if they really are broken up, that you'd have to sort of, you know, rehire people from one place to another that would be inefficient and it would be more difficult. What Wagner has really been known for is its flexibility and its innovativeness in contrast to the regular Russian military forces. It's operated more like what we can imagine GRU Spetsnaz forces as operating in. Um, and so I think that that's sort of the natural place for Wagner to go would be to have a stronger relationship with the GRU Spetsnaz, but I'm not sure that breaking it up would be the most um, militarily beneficial thing to do. And then something else to think about about breaking it up is that then it becomes very hard to deploy it to a new location. And one of the, you you know, the real strength from Russia's perspective on the Wagner group is you never know where they're going to pop up next. Um, and so having this group of people that have broad experiences who can be thrown into a new situation, um, again, has been one real advantage of the Wagner group. But, you know, I think um, Vonda does a good job of talking about the possibilities that maybe it'll be broken up, maybe it'll go under defense ministry oversight. If Russia is thinking straight, it will go under GRU Spetsnaz oversight rather than regular Russian military oversight rather than Shoigu, but we'll just have to see about that. And then there's an also a possibility that some other oligarch will take them over. Over. And the one that I've always thought about is um, Gennady, uh, Gennady Timchenko, um, who is the huge Russian oligarch in Syria, much more important than Prigozhin ever was. But he was working with Redut, as, as Vanda has mentioned, in Syria to do guarding of his oil and gas and phosphate enterprises. 
very similar to what Wagner has been doing in Syria for the last couple of years. Um, and so having Timchenko take on some commercial relationship might also be something that's sensible. In terms of what- um, Really quick, Kim, one follow-up question on the if Wagner remains intact, but kind of moves under the GRU more direct management. I guess one question I have about that is whether or not the government, especially given the war in Ukraine, has the kind of bandwidth and capacity to be able to take it on and the resources to to keep it going. And what so that that's the one I and again, I don't have I don't know what's going to happen to Wagner. And you you both lay out the possibilities. But on that one, that's been one of my big questions. Yeah, you, you raise a really good point, which is that you don't want it to come under the complete um, financial responsibility for the defense ministry, and you don't want to stop it from doing the illegal and smuggling activities that it's been doing, which is harder, not impossible. Obviously, the GRU has always done things like that, um, but harder for uh, uh, somebody who is a, 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 um, officially affiliated with the Russian state to do than it is for somebody who is like on the on the on the outskirts to do and that might be one of the reasons why at least some of the operations would make sense to give to a different oligarch rather than to completely put under the GRU but that's a really good point um uh about um how there've been various things that Wagner has given Russia that it would be very hard for the GRU to replicate um on um you you had asked earlier what they had accomplished in Africa in particular um the Wagner group is um primarily at this point solely responsible for um uh, shoring up the government of the central african republic and there was a great report done by a an organization called The Century, um, I think in cooperation with CNN, um, that discovered, um, you know, exactly where Wagner was in the Central African Republic. It was not just with gold and diamonds. It was with breweries. It was, they had taken over all kinds of businesses. They had basically been given control over the way that security forces and military forces were used throughout the Central African Republic. Um, and one of the reasons I think they've been so successful there um, is that um, Twadera, the president of, of the Central African Republic, allowed them fully in and allowed a GRU uh, former officer to come and be his national security advisor when they went in. And that means they probably got access to all of the intelligence information that was available in the Central African Republic. Where Wagner, you had asked where Wagner has not been successful. Uh, one of the places it failed was in Mozambique. It only stayed there for a few months because it did not have the support of local security services, which probably meant that it did not have good local intelligence because Russia has not been present in many of these countries either before or for a very long time. Even though some people in, in, in analysts have, have phrased this as Russia returning to Africa, Russia, uh, Soviet Union never had a strong relationship with the Central African Republic. So they didn't have that intelligence background. And in Mozambique, they hadn't been there in many, many years. And so that meant that they didn't have that local intelligence. Um, another place that they failed was in Eastern Libya in trying to take over um, Tripoli in 2020 uh, with uh, Halifa Haftar's forces. And it was because they didn't have an answer to the Turkish drones that were um, protected by Turkish air defense systems. And so there are weaknesses to Wagner. We shouldn't think of them as if they're like 10 feet tall and they can do anything. Um, they, they, they have some real weaknesses. And in terms of what this means for the United States, I think it's very unlikely that Russia is going to try to put any forces at this point into a place like Niger, as long as the U.S. still has that substantial military base there, because Wagner got its message, as, as Vonda pointed out, in February 2018, when it tried to take on U.S. special forces in Syria, in Daryl Zor, it failed miserably. And so if you are Russia, you know, you may be very risk acceptant. But you don't want to risk something like Daryl Zor happening again in uh, Niger. So I think as long as the U.S. military presence is there, 
it's unlikely to have something like Wagner um, become an irritant to it. And so the places where Wagner is has really made a lot of inroads in the past couple of years is not where they've been criticizing the United States, it's where they've been criticizing France. And that has been the major message of all of Prigozhin's social media campaigns in Africa is that France is this terrible actor who is a continuing neo-colonial power um, and turn to Russia instead because Russia isn't neo-colonial, which of course we know it is, it's doing, you know, it's taking, it's stealing all the resources and so forth. Um, but that means places where you don't have a significant US military presence, but where France has now withdrawn, um, maybe places where something like the Wagner Group is gonna continue to try to go. Fonda, you want to build on that? Yeah, I mean, a few points worth highlighting. Um, so the Central African Republic, as Kim said, is the place where Wagner achieved uh, greatest dominance over public policy, not just military policy, beyond the um, economic activities that Kim mentioned called uh, gold, diamonds, um, breweries, timber was a big business. Uh, but it's also, and to some extent, uh, I would say to a great extent, uh, the government of the Central uh, African Republic was essentially under the thumb of Wagner. It was taking decisions directly counterproductive, not just for the country, but even uh, counterproductive to some of the economic interests of uh, the uh, power men uh, in the Central African Republic. But immediately as the mutiny was taking place, the president uh, and failed. The president declared that his contract, his arrangements have all along been with the Kremlin. He repeated that after Prigozhin died, but even Prigozhin died within hours of the mutiny. But there was one place where one would have expected that you would hear the African leader, the African buyer of Wagner Praetorian Guard services to come in support of, of Wagner. It could have been the Central African Republic and it didn't. The phrasing was very much Moscow, President Putin, those are our real friends, they are the real people that we have the relations with. On uh, the uh, Wagner's failures, I would say that not only is it not eight feet tall, it's actually performing rather miserably. Its biggest um, uh, sales pitch uh, officially is that it will deliver these effective stabilization counter-terrorism, counter-insurgency missions. But in fact, it's been miserable at it. Uh, in uh, Mali, we have seen Wagner not just being extremely brutal, but significant deterioration of security in Mali uh, as um, um, as um, uh, Wagner was deployed and French and uh, UN forces are leaving. And the chance that Gao will fail is quite, will, will fall to the Islamists is quite substantial. By some accounts, the Islamists, both ISIS and Al-Qaeda linked, are essentially within 150, 200 kilometers uh, of Bamako. And that's not a unique picture. Wagner is replicating typical Soviet Russian counterinsurgency policy, scorch earth brutality, brutalize the population, drive them out of the territories in order to starve <coughs> uh, the militants, but it has backfired. It has backfired in Mali. Uh, it's not working that great in Car. It was an utter fiasco uh, in Mozambique. Uh, and two final comments, one on Niger. So you know, there's interesting kind of play going on. Um, so I agree uh, with Kim that um, Russia would not want to see um, U.S. forces decimating any kind of Russian security, private or otherwise deployments uh, in uh, Mali, uh, sorry, in, in the Niger. 
But at the same time, if um, some sort of Russian presence uh, is inserted, Russian military unofficial, semi-official presence is inserted, that's a further hedge against ECOWAS intervention. And that further cements the Putin staying in power. Um, I think it's significant that we uh, have not seen Wagner coming in. And this was, in my view, not because Russia feared that the U.S. would start striking them, but because it did not want to give uh, Wagner and Prigozhin any more role and visibility at the time as they were moving to, to him in. Uh, but I'm not persuaded that it will stay. But Niger is a very interesting place to watch. It's very interesting to see whether you know, redoubt, convoy, someone will show up in Niger or not for the consideration that Kim mentioned. But my final comment here would be is that I think it would be a grave mistake uh, for US foreign policy to again underestimate the damage that Wagner under its name, new names, uh, more broadly, these Russia proxy forces do in Africa and other places. The U.S. really woke up to them with kind of robust packages of resistance, oppositions, economic sanctions, only when Wagner um, moved into Ukraine. That's when we have started um, seeing the Treasury and uh, State Department kind of moving full throttle against Wagner. But there were years of damage where they were getting away very lightly with gravely damaging the U.S. and Western interests and causing tremendous harms to basic um, security and public interest of the people uh, in Africa and the Middle East. If I could just add a couple of things yeah. to Vanda's yeah. excellent analysis. Um, the first thing is that Wagner may be saying, and Russia may be saying, that it's engaged in anti-terrorist activities, but I don't think anybody's ever believed that. What they're really engaged in is propping up authoritarian governments against opposition. And in the Central African Republic, they've been incredibly brutal. They've killed a lot of people, but they have actually brought more stability to the country than was there before they arrived. Um, all the evidence we have is that the, the um, capital now controls more territory in the Central African Republic than they did when Wagner first went in, in in late 2017. So I think you know we have to be clear in our own own minds of what Wagner can do and can't do. In Mali, Vanda is absolutely right. They're, they're facing just a huge amount of, of um, terrorist opposition. And I think that they might be having the same problem in Mali that they had uh, in uh, Mozambique, which is a lack of local intelligence. Um, a, a major part of the conflict in Mali is between the urban elite, which represents the government, um, and then the rural population. And the rural population are the people that have been drawn to the Islamists because they feel like the urban elite isn't taking care of their interests. And so if Wagner just has intelligence shared by the urban elite, they're not going to have good information on what's going on in the countryside, and they're not going to be very good at all at, at counterterrorism. So I think that's an important point. On sanctions, we need to keep in mind that everywhere that Wagner has gone has been to a place already under sanctions. Um, and so the only people that have been willing to um, accept Wagner um, have been people who really don't care about the West. Um, and so that means that it, it's very unlikely that Wagner would ever go into Kenya, for example. It just doesn't fit the, the model. Um, but any place that has had a military coup and says to the West, we want you out, we're not interested you in, in, in you anymore, there's really nothing that sanctions can do can, to stop Russia from going in there because the people that they are going to help have already been sanctioned. Well, th th thank you all for these past few minutes. This is just a huge uh, uh learning experience, I think, for a lot of us uh, who don't track as closely as you all do. It's just just been a fabulous uh, presentation here. But I couldn't help thinking 
Uh, and Vondra, you were you really were talking about this quite a bit. But but why was it that uh, the West and the United States, particularly, we weren't pushing back and trying to do things until it was uh, Ukraine that brought our attention in a policy wise. Ah, I, I see Kim's got a waving her finger on that. Well, then, then then talk a little bit about how the U.S. has tried to deal with this. Uh, I mean, you can make a case that we really don't deal with Africa or a lot of the global South until something big and bad happens. Then we rush down there and we're your best friends. And by then it's cynical and who believes it? And, you know, there's problems like that. I mean, I guess that was, I was trying to get at, I was leading. So, so, but on that, and the last point, you know, I don't think a lot of people know so much about, although it was reported at the time, about that engagement between the special forces and I think Marines and the Wagner group in Syria, where we where there was quite the firefight and a lot of Wagner people were killed. There was reported, but then it kind of dropped off the screen. And when you think about it, U.S. forces were attacked in Syria. There was quite a fire, as I said, quite a exchange of gunfire between them. We, uh, and, But um, nothing seemed to come from that. Uh, there wasn't uh, a great hue and cry coming from the United States. This is an attack on the United States by the Russians, even though it was done through Wagner, et cetera, et cetera. It was kind of went quiet. Um, and so so just on that point, how the U.S. has dealt with Wagner in the past uh, and uh, and this thing about when we did confront with them in a violent way, uh, we were quite successful. Uh, but it got real quiet instead of people saying we've just been attacked by Russia. Kim, you're the you were waving your arms. I think you have yeah. Something. So a couple things to think about the the um, the sanctions against Prigozhin and Wagner actually started with the um, uh, election interference in the United States by right. uh, uh, Prigozhin's Internet Research Agency back in 2016. Um, right. So it didn't just happen after Ukraine. Um, right. uh, so, but I think that the part that is is absolutely right that uh, both you, Jim, and Vonda make is that the United States has not been paying enough attention to Africa. I don't think there's anything specifically we could have done against Wagner to stop Wagner from doing what it did in Africa. But I think you're absolutely right that we have been ignoring Africa as a, a center of interest. And I think that that has come back to bite us in terms of that being the place in the Sahel right now where I think the US military feels that that is the major um, uh, potentially global Islamist terrorist threat base um, at the moment and the United States hasn't done enough for it. So that is that is absolutely correct. And I think that we've had this tendency to just believe that we are the provider of all good things and that those who love democracy will come to the United States without having an understanding of the, the truly local um, concerns and local fights and um, local feelings of um, not being heard um, that are really what's motivating these, these coups and this instability throughout Africa, which is where I think Vonda actually started her message early on. So, so I'll, I'll say that there. Um, on uh, uh, Syria, I'll let Vonda talk a lot about that because I know she has Syrian expertise. Um, but I think what was really going on is that um, the U.S. at that point had a greater geostrategic concern, which is trying to keep uh, relative peace with Russia in Syria, where there are both Russian forces and U.S. forces being deployed. 
Um, right. And Russia made it very clear in the message that uh, was transmitted through the uh, deconfliction channel um, in 2018, as these Wagner forces with their um, Syrian uh, militias were marching towards the uh, facility that uh, was held by the Kurdish forces that the U.S. Special Forces were supporting, that they're not ours. The Russian uh, state, the Russian defense ministry said they're not ours. And as Vonda said, I've been arguing ever since then that um, this was a message that was being sent by the defense ministry to Prigozhin, um, that, you know, you act against us and we don't protect you. And the, what was really motivating that was a series of lawsuits that had happened in 2017, uh, where um, it was very clear that Prigozhin was stealing money from the defense ministry in Russia and the defense ministry wasn't paying his, um, his uh, contracts. And he took them to court and he won the lawsuits. And so that was him having this roof over his head. Um, and this was um, the, the defense ministry um, uh, responding in return, um, you know, you think you've got this roof, you don't have our roof. So, yeah. and I think the reason that the U.S. didn't make a bigger deal out of it is that they had bigger concerns. Um, it was extraordinarily frightening to the U.S. forces on the ground, but there were no U.S. forces hurt, apparently. Yeah, uh, let me just start. No, absolutely. On Syria, um, uh, you know, you have these deconflicting channels that are supposed to keep um, the U.S. from hitting Russia and Russia from hitting the U.S. And yet right. the message from the Russian defense forces, go for them. Those are not our guys. And this is direct shot across the bow or shot into the bow of Prigozhin. You start behaving because you are really irritating us. You are, you know, you have to understand who the real master is, whether it's GRU or the military, but it's not you. It's someone uh, in the official Russian power. And Prigozhin did not get the message. And he was enormously bitter. And a lot of the people that were then part of Wagner and the Putschis had these bitter memories that they were thrown uh, under the bus uh, in Syria. So, so the tensions between the establishment and Prigozhin uh, go long way. And, and Syria was a core source of what was festering over many years. But Prigozhin still had uh, Putin's protection, Putin's roof, until um, he destroyed it. Um, and on, on just the, the, the opposing Wagner, so yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, Prigozhin himself, because of uh, his interference in the Russian elections and support for Donald Trump and polarization was under sanctions. And even bits of Wagner were under sanctions in Africa. But what I was really trying to say is that the US did not move full throttle to challenging Wagner in Africa and its right. operations in Africa. So there were steps, but they were limited. They did they did not apply to a whole variety of Wagner entities. Uh, U.S. diplomacy was not exercised at all to the same level that we saw last year uh, when uh, U.S. was tremendous pressure on Burkina Faso not to allow Burkina Faso to sign up to a similar type of military uh, relationship with Wagner uh, as Mali. And that, that, that full throttle challenge, uh, incidentally, I um, mean, we similarly were allowing tremendous amount of um, or we are similarly aware, is the way I want to phrase it, of a similar amount of um, money uh, laundering, gold laundering, diamond laundering taking place uh, from Wagner uh, through the United Arab Emirates. Uh, but uh, And there were people within the US government arguing this needs to be pushed to the top agenda with UAE, and it never would. It would just not stay mentioned because other interests in the Middle East, other priorities with UAE were trumping it until we moved to February and March this year, where finally UAE and UAE companies are put on notice, are also um, sanctions, and there is pressure. 
And this change of priority, this elevation of Wagner to the top full throttle focus of US policy is the consequence of Ukraine. And what this really is about is the Biden's administration understanding of uh, priorities and the big uh, strategic element of its foreign policy. Get out of these uh, places with long-standing uh, terrorism uh, uh, conflicts and insurgency conflict. Get out of the Iraqs. Get out of the Afghanistan. Get out of um, uh, these unending uh, internal wars. If the 9-11 era is over, it's the era of great power competition with focus predominantly on China and secondary uh, or Russia. And of course, what we are seeing is that when the US takes this posture, uh, the local conflicts bring us in. When the coup in Niger took place, it was a major shock for US foreign policy. It was the last bastion of Western power projection or Western counterterrorism in Niger. And it's in immense jeopardy. And the odds are very substantial that the, that the putsches will stay and that US and French um, foreign troop presence will likely not be sustainable. I mean, it's the, the US hasn't called it the coup because it's desperate to hang on to the military base that it has there. But it's not at all clear that it will succeed. And if the U.S. stays, it will likely have to stay swallowing that the putsches will be in power and it will have to deal with them. Uh, but it's part and parcel of the 9-11 era, uh, the 20 years of the counterterrorism as the defining pivot of U.S. policy is over. And the focus is very different, even as the countries from which we are trying to get out of keep pulling us back. Fascinating. That's just really, oh, my God, this this is so so interesting. No, that was a perfect place to end, Vonda. You kind of gave us that kind of wonderful bookmark to this conversation, which, as Jim said, was like a tremendous learning experience, I know, for us and I'm sure many of our listeners. So we're so thankful that you are willing to take your time. Um, we've, as, as you both have sketched out, there is still a lot of uncertainty about the future of Wagner. So I'm I'm hopeful that you'll be both willing to come back uh, in a couple of months time when things maybe start to become more clear about what that trajectory is. We can hope. Uh, Kim is laughing at me for that. Um, but we'll, we'll have to, we'll have to get back together and kind of take notes and take stock of where we are. So um, until then, thank you very much for your time and expertise. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts brought to you by the transatlantic security team at the center for a new American security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.